Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Lots to talk about here. We're going to stay on the markets, but Midge Rahman joins now from Eurasia Group and uh, gave us great perspective earlier in this uh, Monday morning, and we'll do it again. Mitch Rahman, over the weekend, there was a headline that basically said the United States has a big old Air Force base in Turkey, and Turkey's not happy with our big old Air Force base in Turkey, and that's creating a lot of tension. Give us a briefing right now on that real visceral thing for Erdogan and Trump, which is a huge U.S. presence in southern Turkey. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, I think, look, the the context here is a a, a quickly deteriorating relationship between Turkey and the U.S., where absolutely everything is in play from air bases to U.S. sanctions on Halk Bank to cooperation in Syria, to U.S. funding of Turkey's current account. I mean, the relationship is really on the precipice. And I think that's why we still assume some degree of rationality on the side of Erdogan. I do think he will signal a commitment this week to release the pastor as well as some decisive action by the central bank, because otherwise he's looking at much, much more difficult choices that could undermine his political mega project back home. Mitch, what underpins your confidence that that will happen, both in terms of the release of the pastor and the actual move to do what's needed domestically, higher interest rates, perhaps tighter fiscal policy? What gives you confidence that's about to happen? It's really looking at the alternatives. What's what's the counterfactual? If Erdogan does not allow the central bank to move decisively this week, if this row with the U.S. is not de-escalated, essentially he's looking at two options, capital controls, which for a country as dependent on foreign exchange as Turkey is, would be absolutely disastrous, a massive blow to investor confidence, far more than we've seen over the course of the last few weeks, or indeed an IMF standby agreement, because he will need external funding for the current account. And of course, that would come with conditions and constraints that would undermine a large part of Erdogan's political narrative. Remember, he has made political hay of the fact he was the leader who kicked the IMF out and, and returned full sovereignty to Turkey. So to now have to accept an IMF program with all of the conditions that that would impose on him, I think would be a massive humiliation for him. And I just, I find those two options so unpalatable for him that although a move by the central bank would be difficult, it's far easier than, than the alternative. I'm just wondering, though, whether he has no choice, whether he's been completely overtaken by events now and something that might have worked a week, two weeks ago will just no longer work. The high short-term interest rates and tighter fiscal policy won't regain confidence in this market and they'll have to institute the, uh, the emergency measures that you just pointed out, Mitch. Well, I, I think 
there is a precedent for the dynamic that we're currently seeing back in May. I think you could see a very decisive rate hike by the central bank, let's say 500 to 1,000 basis points, right? Yeah. So five to 10 percentage points, that kind of number. And then Erdogan would say, look, you know, this is not what I support, but the central bank is independent. I think that would stop the immediate bleeding. And then you're right, we would need to see Al Bayrak being able to demonstrate he's a positive influence on Erdogan by coming forward with a much broader and comprehensive strategy of economic reform that includes fiscal right. consolidation as one of its legs. Now, is that likely? I think highly, highly questionable. But again, the alternatives, I think, are so unpalatable, both economically and politically. I think we are going to see oh. some fairly decisive action this week. And now time, folks, for our Monday dumb question of the day. I'll ask it. But then, Midge, what does Mr. Erdogan want? I mean, I understand he's pushing back against the U.S. for a set of reasons, and there's a traditional German-Turkish relationship. I get all that. But what's he really want with allies and non-allies? I think, Tom, ultimately we, we've seen it crystallize on the back of the presidential election. I think he wants to ultimately institutionalize and entrench his power and those around him. And anything that could potentially complicate or undermine that institutionalization of power, I think he will he will perceive yeah. as a threat. So he, he has his presidential system in place. He has his preferred successes now all around the cabinet table. And mm-hmm. he ultimately wants... I think, to, to, to move that mega political project right. off his forward. Now, being dependent on foreign capital, having to raise interest rates, having to be dictated to right. essentially by external actors, the markets, I think undermines that, uh, that, that mega right. project that he is, that he is so well, desperately seeking to implement. Um, does Germany but, 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 does Germany come in in the next couple of days? I mean, just one final question, Midge. If we could, I mean, Germany has an historic and unique relationship with the people of Turkey. Did, does Chancellor Merkel come in unilaterally and try to fix this uh, in terms I of the politics? So there's definitely something to this. There is a state visit between Erdogan and Merkel at the end of September, and I think that will be used as a vehicle to try and pass diplomatic messages on to the Turks around what the Germans think Turkey needs to do. I think, like the U.S., they think the plan the government's presented is not fit for purpose. It's largely cosmetic. That a structural crisis was likely regarding the economy because of all of the rule of law violations and the undermining of investor confidence we've seen over the last few years. So I think there will be that there is a context for Germany to try and influence actions in Turkey. And of course, that's a big concern in Germany, not least because they're implementing an agreement that is stemming the flow of migrants into Germany, which, as you know, in 2015 was massively important for Angela Merkel's survival. So the Europeans are watching this closely. Mitch, thank you so much, Mitch Rahman, with an international relations update that overlays on the finance, the economics, and the investment that we're looking at. John and I try to do in the modern media is we always cite everything. And what you don't see is we and our great team are scrambling to separate out eh, from like legitimate news organizations. John, we just walked through that 20 minutes ago with a market moving tweet. 
Yeah. The fact is, the tweet moved the market. The tweet did move the market to some extent. We saw some Turkish lira come in. We saw euro dollar flat on the session, and we saw U.S. futures pair some of the early losses. Yeah. It was a tweet essentially communicating on Twitter, which has now been completely unconfirmed. Um, the U.S. Ankara Embassy official speaking to Reuters saying they haven't issued a statement regarding the U.S. Pastor Brunson. This is from right. Reuters. This is from Ankara. This is the reporting coming from Reuters. This after a tweet suggested that the pastor, Andrew Brunson, right. who was facing espionage and terrorism allegations related to that failed 2016 coup and ultimately is at the epicenter of the spat between the U.S. Right. and Turkey, there was a tweet suggesting he would be released. And now we are seeing, according to Reuters, Reuters that the Ankara Embassy is saying, Nuh-uh. We haven't right. said anything about it. And and to show you the market reaction, we have to live with a lower numbers, a stronger lira. We went from about 702, exploded down to 6.60, 6.50, and now we've come about 85% back. Yeah. To 6.97. And this is the danger of getting unverified news on Twitter. Yeah. It moves markets. People make stuff up. It's unconfirmed reports, and we're seeing well, it again. I don't want to speculate about the why that that tweet came out. No, and we I'm not We just got to look either. at it when it moves markets. Do you know what we did learn from that tweet, right. though? That the market is assigning great importance yeah. to the to the well, pastor and his release. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, yes, I think that's true. I want to bring in our guest. Yeah, Georgette Boel, ABN AMRO, bank currency and commodity strategist, joining us now. Georgette, great to have you with us on the program. I would have thought the more important piece of this puzzle was getting a real domestic response, higher rates, tighter fiscal policy. But off the back of a an unconfirmed turning out to be false tweet that the pastor would be released, we saw a sizable market move. Is it that important, the US side of this story, Georgette? Yeah, that's right. Um, the thing is, is that if you look at this kind of volatility in the market, market is relatively thin. Uh, not a lot of people want to be in the Turkish lira in the current environment. On the other hand, you know, they are also afraid to be caught on the wrong side of the market. If you get, like, you now had an ex exponential weakening of the lira, um, if you now get a an, an kind of communication uh, that maybe the spat between the U.S. and Turkey may be cooling down or even calming, or, on the other hand, if you were to get an announcement which sounds a bit credible, could be a combination of interest rates higher yeah. or anything else, then you can also see a quite recovery of the lira um, because people say, okay, we were right. negative, uh, let's scale it a bit back. So this is quite a dangerous market, and yet yeah, you get volatility like this because right. in fact there is barely a market. Georgia, what is your call on yen? If that's the global proxy, deepest market, stronger yen, fear in the market, 110.60, clearly we're seeing that his ABN ammo do you have a call on yen and if you had to change it in the last two trading days uh, yes we have a call on yen and we have not changed it in the last two trading days uh, for the end of the third quarter so the end of September and the end of the year we have 110 in dollar yen you more the, the nervousness you see currently in the market is more visible in euro yen because there is some kind of nervousness about the euro as well um, we don't completely share that nervousness but it is something you see in markets so euro yen is the one which is mostly down uh, for the day and it's also something we yeah in terms of uh, possible contagion risk uh, reflected in markets, euro yen is more the one to watch than dollar yen, as well as euro Swiss at the moment, which is making uh, yeah, a low again. So, yeah. so overall, yeah, on quotation, I would look at uh, euro yen and euro Swiss. Yeah. Uh, gold is less of a good uh, indicator at the moment. 
Um, and then, yeah, dollar-yen, you have, in fact, two currencies which are the most liquid and which all both qualify for a safe haven, which are the dollar and the yen. So there, the, 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 the effect is not that visible. Some big calls coming in on euro-dollar this morning on this program, George. We caught up with Kit Jukes of Sokgen about 30 minutes ago, looking for euro-dollar to strike 110. Um, what's your call on euro-dollar now, and has it changed in the last couple of weeks, and why? No, we have, in fact, for, for quite some time already 110. Um, and it was a bit, yeah, questioning because 115 was a quite crucial level. And then because of the, the nervousness about Turkey and a possible spillover to Europe, uh, yeah, it becomes more right. likely that we, in fact, see 110. And that, for us, would be the lowest point because we right. see towards the end of the year and next year you're strengthening right. or recovering again because we also expect that the, the dollar will peak around yeah. those levels. So, so we have one then for the end of uh, September. Georgia Bull, thank you so much for joining us across all of our Bloomberg platforms with ABN AMRO. Uh, timely, uh, to say the least. This is the right guy to talk to. Stephen Gendel has made a, a career of being testy and asking the right questions. There's different kinds of journalists, Pim. And then there's journalists that come from the Washington University of St. Louis. Ah, and they right. make people squirm. Uh, no, they make the money easy, maybe. Let's <laughs> go. So this is a squirm. <laughs> St. Louis by backway streets of Wall Street and... and, 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 and in what way Watching is Watching the bubble pop. Yeah, well, the bubble's popping right now with the headlines moments 2000s. ago for Mr. Musk. Tell me, the, tell me the squirm factor of Mr. Musk now secured financing and yet the deal's going forward. Right. So I think the squirm factor is a lot on the board, right? Because they it seemed clear from the statement the next day that they were kind of uh, you know, in the dark. Maybe they had a conversation, but they didn't know they knew this tweet was coming from Wall Street, right? They're squirming. And, and now if – Possibly the Saudis or someone was going to, uh, you know, had secured funding for this deal, right, was going to fund it. The fact that now uh, Musk is under investigation by the SEC, uh, it's going to make anyone really squirmy. I mean, that's the squirmiest person right now, whoever, if there was someone who was going to fund this deal. Why? Why? I mean, if they're already in with Steve, with Elon Musk, Th that's this is not the first time that Elon Musk has done something that has upset the status quo and the way the companies are either yes, run. Yes, but this is the first time that's put him himself in jeopardy as as the CEO because the SEC could, based on this, and it's it's potentially market manipulation. They could bar him from being an officer, and he this company is so entwined with him, right? You're not just investing but in Tesla; you're that, investing in Elon okay, Musk. Okay, but let me just push back on that because that is something that is true. Whether he did this tweet for four hundred and twenty dollars, go private transaction or not every investor had already bet the farm on elon musk running the company correct yes but when you make a deal with elon musk to take his company private you take the biggest risk right away in this stock, right. which is that he says something stupid that moves the stock right if you were thinking okay i'm going to do a deal with him i'm going to get him private i'm going to remove this risk now the risk is even big it's even bigger the elephant in the room for me which you're going to write for for bloomberg opinion Stephen got dealt with this is musk says notified tesla board august 2nd on wanting to privatize 
But that could have been like August 2nd at 9 p.m. versus reruns of Ozzy and Harriet. <laughs> I mean, we don't know if he even got out in front on this tweet and told the board. I mean, it, we, we don't know, do we? You know, boards have a lot of discussions. Uh, so he had discussion with um, SoftBank, which didn't, you know, go very far. So people have these kind of discussions, right? And he can kind of use that for cover. But it does not sound like they had the type of uh, discussions that you usually have before you make a tweet like this or before you uh, make something public. In right. Any way. No pre- there was no press release. There, there was, was no, no filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. There was nothing. There's a lot of potential conflicts of here. Any reasonable board would have a special non-conflicted you know, panel or group to investigate this. They okay, didn't have but- that. They're just drawing up the special group now. Agreed. But I go back to the original point, which is that Tesla is a company run by a gentleman who doesn't use any rule book. Right. And you knew that. I, I agree. But you, it wasn't necessarily run by someone who's under investigation by the SEC, who could be removed. Right. And so I don't know how you put $70 billion in a company that way. And I'm not saying the SEC definitely goes after him. And he can say we had these discussions and funding secured was was uh, a loose term. And, you know, it's it's been well established that CEOs can use Twitter. Yeah, but sure. So I'm not sure the SEC goes after him, but at the very least, the biggest risk of this deal is now the fact that he's he's created this SEC investigation. I, I'll go with that, but isn't the biggest risk uh, immediate? Is it somebody lost reported $1.7 billion because he didn't want to use the rule book that, that Ms. Ms. Barra at General Motors would have to use? Meaning that— The uh, short sellers got killed. Right, and so there's lawsuits coming. Is that what you're saying? That's, yeah, I mean, that's a I mean, bigger risk. To me, it's almost an. I'm not saying it's a bigger risk, uh-huh. but it's a huge distraction, isn't it? It's a it's a huge distraction because it puts Musk at uh, legal risk. I think you know, the the money they if if they get fined, I mean they'll have to they'll have to have some class action lawsuits, and and they'll be. It's it's a big distraction, but I think the bigger issue for the deal is that it puts Musk at risk, and, but. You know, I mean, the bigger issue could be because it's it's kind of a dumb transaction, too. I mean, they're, they're a, a relatively good public company. I, I can't assure you that it's a good stock, but I think it's a better public company than it is a private company because stock pairs are paying, what, 140 times two years out earnings. If right? you're James Murdoch, you're on the board, you've been there for less than two years, what kinds of conversations are you having with your own counsel? Or maybe you don't have counsel. Um, I think you're, I don't, I don't know what legal risk he has other than, um, I mean, I think he's on the board because I would guess that he's on the board because he sees this as the future. And, and I, I, I would think that he'd be on the board, um, and, and sees Musk as a visionary. Right. So I, I don't know if, I think it's probably, he's probably like a lot of the Tesla shareholders who are just, you know, they, they believe in this vision. Thanks very much for being with us. Stephen Gandell, Bloomberg Opinion on Tesla. There has been any number of topics in this really interesting August. We could start with Turkey. We could end with uh, the politics of the nation. But one of them has been Tesla. And a Bloomberg survey carefully done showed that 99.275 of the people talking about Tesla, Pim, 
have never been in a Tesla. And that would include me. Really? Should we talk to someone who actually has a Tesla? Tesla owner, Tesla driver. And I got to say, I did test drive a Tesla. And I was completely bowled over. It was an amazing experience. It's like the center of gravity has shifted. And the stock has done so poorly, 42.5% per year from inception. And it's down a little bit from 2007. Matthew Winkler with us, uh, Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of Bloomberg News and Tesla owner. When you hear the Tesla gloom and doom crew, as a car guy, which you are, how do you respond? So first of all, thank you very much uh, for that. I'm not a car guy. Um, you know, before I had a Tesla, I had a 13-year-old Toyota uh, Avalon, and that was solely because it has a great back seat. And when I tested my Tesla, the one that I have now, which I bought in 2014, it was because of its back seat. There are all kinds of other things, of course, that yeah. come with the Tesla. Everybody's got the story. But, yeah. but uh, the answer to your question is uh, you shouldn't ask actually me. Um, you should ask the people actually own the shares of Tesla, who, uh, according to data compiled by Bloomberg, which all of our users can access, shows um, a greater loyalty and commitment to Tesla than is seen in any other automaker, which is astounding to me. In other words, the people with the most at stake, who are the investors uh, who are following Tesla right. and following <clears throat> Tesla's experience with its owners, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, have made Tesla the most lucrative, as you said, but also, here's the, here's the real surprise, the least volatile. Um, share among automakers, uh, major competitors. Why is that? Partly it's because of the sales growth of Tesla, which is an exponential multiple of the sales growth of other car makers. And you could say, okay, they're starting from a very low base. But that is also in the context of, at some point, so many more of us, a multiple of us, are going to be driving electric vehicles. So Tesla is the only car maker that is fully committed yeah. to doing that. And then finally, if you just went to Consumer Reports, which everybody can do, and see what do the people like me think about Tesla, you know, the Model S is the highest rated car in the world, uh, according to Consumer Reports. And the Model 3, which is meant to be a vehicle for everybody, every man, every woman, has the highest owner satisfaction. So you, you didn't do this just because you wanted your kids to think you were cool? Actually, one of the appeals of the Tesla was that I could put two grandchildren. There uh, you go. In the, there you go. In the back seat, the far uh, back seat. That's in the proxy and, area. And, and, they've got, and, they, and they've got, you know, this whatever, five-point uh, seatbelt system, so yeah. it's totally safe. This is great. And that was cool. It was really yeah. cool that I could yeah. do that. Pin jumping. Well, I, I okay. I'm just going to throw some some issues at you, and you can tell me what you think. A hundred years ago, 40% of the vehicles on the road in the United States were electric. That didn't work out. There was a lot of money spent, a lot of cheering, a lot of people lost money. In addition, if you go on forums online and you read what Tesla owners say about getting very minor parts in order to fix their cars that have been in minor fender benders, people wait two, three months. At a certain point, do you think their patience is exhausted after they've spent $100,000 for an automobile? Um, well, according to the data, apparently not, because uh, the sales growth uh, continues unabated. So 
nobody's perfect, obviously, but uh, putting that in context, the sales growth is unabated. To your question about uh, electric vehicles way back when, you know, it was Edison himself, Thomas Edison, who thought uh, that was the future. Ironically, mm-hmm. it was Thomas Edison who dismissed Nikola Tesla, his, his at one point, colleague, uh, rival, you could say, uh, and his invention of the alternating uh, current motor um, as impractical. And, of course, we, yeah. all, we all embrace AC today. So I would say Nikola Tesla who, um, you know, did so many things anticipating the 21st century, including, by the way, uh, you know, moving pictures and uh, audio, video and all that, that all comes out of Nikola Tesla. He did that. So, you know, if you go back in time, the electric vehicle was the right idea. It's where we should have gone. Edison, in fact, said as much. He was very disappointed that we wound up with a uh, internal combustion engine for as long as we have. Well, you wonder where I'll be in 10 years. I, I've got to cover this, Matt, because it's so important. You were truly one of the leaders within journalism on Reg FD. You led the charge. And we've seen all sorts of stuff about Mr. Musk, the litigation. We've done three interviews today on it as well. And this folds into the fact, does this guy get a different rule book? Does he, does, does, does an executive at this firm, entrepreneurial owner, et cetera, play by a different rule book than the CEO of Colgate, just as one example? And this goes into disclosure, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a hard uh, question to answer. I mean, obviously, there are, to say the least, idiosyncrasies and to say the worst, maybe irregularities. Um, but in the age of Twitter, which we're all in, uh, all kinds of things are happening with respect to disclosure that were unimaginable when we did the coverage of Selective disclosure back in the 90s at Bloomberg News, which led to, as you say, the uh, Reg FD regulation. Do we need to go back to that or do we need to find something new given modern digital distribution? I mean, if you ask me, greater transparency is always preferred and we should do everything we can. Uh, in our public markets to perpetuate and accentuate transparency. So anything that gets in the way of that, I I guess I'm I'm in the uh, opposition. Matt Winkler, thank you so much. He's Emeritus uh, Editor-in-Chief and writing intelligently on Tesla, actually going down the silent road with grandchildren. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.